researchers want to hear from patients. Patients and their families want to be involved. Why is this so hard to do? My name is Kevin Fryert. My 30-year career at Pfizer gave me a chance to learn about many facets of drug discovery and development. When I retired, I started Salem Oaks to help patients understand the world of biopharmaceutical R&D so that they can be more effective partners and shape the future of medicine. We think that if patients and researchers got to know each other as people, the conversations would be much easier to start. Each month on Unprobable Developments, I will interview scientists, investigators, and patients who are actively working in medical research and development. Our goal is to help patients and those who care about them to get to know the kinds of people working on their behalf. Today on Improbable Developments, we are talking to Amy Grover. Amy has been involved in the rare disease world for some time and may be familiar to some of you. Amy, could you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Sure, absolutely. And thank you for having me here today, Kevin. Currently, I am the Director of Advocacy at Catalyst Pharmaceuticals, but on a personal note, I live in Southern California, which I love, even though it's quite expensive to live here, I still love it. I have four amazing children who are either in the process or have graduated college. So um, currently right now, we're a full house, but they will be leaving the nest soon. So I'm, I'm enjoying that as much as possible and hanging on tight to that. And uh, I have a rather large extended family. So I have five siblings and 17 nieces and nephews, and we love to get together and travel. So I'm looking forward to getting back to that. Yeah, I remember travel. We used to do that. Do you remember um, that? Yeah, yeah. It's been a while but I can't wait to travel again. So thank you so much for being here. Can you tell us a little bit about Catalyst, you know, what the company is about and exactly what your role is there? Well, Catalyst was founded in 2002. It is headquarters in uh, Coral Gables, Florida, which is near Miami. So my commute from Southern California to occasionally to uh, Coral Gables, Florida is not a bad commute. So I truly enjoy that. Um, but Catalyst is a relatively small pharmaceutical company, and we have an FDA-approved treatment for Lambert-Eaton myasthenic syndrome, and more commonly known as LEMS. And LEMS is an ultra-rare neuromuscular disorder that affects roughly 3,000 people in the United States. And because the symptoms of LEMS are common with other disorders, like myasthenia gravis, it is often difficult to diagnose. And like many other rare diseases, as you and I know, LEMS patients often have a long and difficult and frustrating path to diagnose it. And my role at Catalyst really is to be that connection between the patient community and the company and keeping the patient perspective uh, in everything that we do and gain a true understanding of the patient journey and the caregiver journey and making sure that we are doing right by the, by the patient and the patient community. One way we do this is to um, hold advisory boards, patient advisory boards and caregiver advisory boards, which we do several times a year. And that's our opportunity to garner and gain feedback from the community to make sure that we are in doing the right thing by the community, doing right by the community to, you know, when the tools and resources that we develop, is it really something that resonates with them and that could be helpful, you know, to the community. We part patient and patient organizations 
on a shared mission of empowering patients. We create tools and resources, educational tools and resources. And like I'm sure you're aware, Kevin, there's not a lot out there sometimes for rare disease. And it's necessary to get those tools and resources out there to the community. And then creating an open dialogue between the patient community and Catalyst. And I'm really just that conduit to make sure that we have that constant connection to the patients and the patient community. That's great. I mean, the things that you said there, the concrete things that you're doing to make the connections with patients, it's not just, gee, I hope the patient calls today. Um, you're, you're out there trying to talk to them. And I think the educational thing that you mentioned, the, the need there, and also education that meets those patients where they're at. It's very easy to put together education, which tells you about all the science around the different ways that we could treat lens. And people will go, what? I don't understand. And that's not what they're worried about. So you have to really figure out where are they, where are they now and what do they need? Exactly. Every community has their unique components uh, to it. And they're, they're different in various ways. You know, with the LEMS community, they are passionate about educating physicians. And I know with a lot of rare disease communities, they're frustrated that they are educating their physician on their rare disease. And that's just the nature, you know, of the beast, really, when it comes to rare disease, you have to be your own self best advocate. And you have to educate yourself and, you know, a better, the best way to do that is to really create those tools and resources so they can be their best advocate for themselves. I was on a clubhouse call this morning, clubhouse, the, the new app, and they were talking with a, a, someone from a payer organization, insurance company. And the question was, how do you help patients through that diagnostic journey? How do you do that? Their answer was. I would say go to your primary care physician because they should know how to navigate the system. And for rare disease, we know that's not true. Primary care physicians just don't know rare diseases unless they've seen one, unless they've had experience. And the chances of you walking in, you know, with a disease that that person has experience in it is nil. So there's got to be a better way to help people find their way, just finding out what's going on with my kid or with me. Exactly. They are, you know, they're scared. They're, you know, wondering, yeah, what is going on with me? And then they're frustrated because some go through four, five, six, seven physicians before they land on that one physician who A, either is willing to look outside the box or B, you know, lo and behold, they have experience with that rare disease. But more often than not, they don't. I mean, there's 7,000 plus rare diseases. You can't expect them to be educated on every single one. And that's where this, you know, community shared. I guess goal is to be educated and educate yourself and educate and educate others. And that's the key. You you just mentioned the community and, and I think about you and your role today and how perfectly suited you are for it because of what you've done before. So how long have you been at Catalyst and, and how'd you find your way into this? I've been at Catalyst for two and a half years. Boy, it sure has gone fast. But before I came to Catalyst, I was at a organization that many people are aware of called Global Genes. And for those who aren't aware of Global Genes, it was founded in 2008. And it's really an umbrella organization advocating, educating, and creating tools and resources for all 7,000 rare diseases. So as you can imagine, that was a daunting, daunting task. 
I started um, at Global Genes in 2008 in its infancy when it was just a little, little tiny company. And I just organically fell into roles that needed to be filled as the company grew, as the company, you know, where, you know, the organization was developing. I fell in that role from everything from accounting to marketing to event planning, and then eventually worked my way into advocacy and awareness. And that's where I fell into my passion. But when I started at Global Genes, I didn't have that true understanding of the rare disease community that we, that honestly, we kind of have a little bit of that today. Um, and I have three siblings with a rare disease. Didn't know that. I knew they had vitiligo, but I didn't correlate the fact that they have a rare disease and they are part of this, you know, bigger, massive community. And it was at that moment, that aha moment that uh, I was hooked. I was hooked. And so I was with at Global Genes for, for 10 years. And I have the, you know, unique perspective of not only working with hundreds and thousands of patients and patient organizations, but also industry partners. And you aren't exaggerating there. Thousands of patients who would come just to the conferences, you know, there'd be over a thousand people there. And then all the programs that Global Genes produces throughout the year that brings patients into contact with other patients. I mean, it's just such a wonderful community. And I think that that when I said you were uniquely qualified to do this job at Catalyst, what you learned there, I think, is, is huge. And, and we'll talk about that more, how that, that comes back around. When you said that the timeline... I thought originally that it was like the same year that I came out of industry, you went into industry, but actually you were about a year and a half behind me, but we basically crossed paths. And I know for me, it was, it was quite a shock when I left a pharmaceutical company, Pfizer, and came out into the world of patients and patient advocacy and really got into rare disease, although I'd started that before. When you went from that advocacy side, the patient side, into industry, uh, what did you notice or what did you learn or what surprised you? Well, first of all, I'm not Googling acronyms anymore. So that's a good thing. <laughs> but uh, I had, like you said, I mean, I spent not only you know, working with thousands of patients and patient organizations, but thousands of hours on the phone or in-person conversations, learning about the patient journey on the advocacy side of things. When I came over to the for-profit side, I learned a lot. And one of the things I did learn was the drug development side of things from the perspective, not only from pharmacy, pharmaceutical companies, but from the patient side of things. I think one of the thing that, things that surprised me the most was the challenges of access to treatment. And I heard, you know, when talking to the patient community, the heart-wrenching stories of patients who didn't have any access to before a drug becomes FDA approved. So there was no access or they got access, but they had to pay out of pocket to travel to gain access. Or once they had access, it was taken away from them. So these stories um, were just heart-wrenching. But another thing that surprised me is that pharmaceuticals sometimes have a bad rap of being, you know, big, bad pharmacies. But I've learned that the patient or the people I am working with right now are just as passionate and just as dedicated to the patient community as I am. And that, that surprised me. And that's where, you know, you get that drive and you get that passion, you know, working with good people who want to do right, you know, by 
the patients and the patient community. And you would think that for a for-profit company, profit would be first and foremost, but it, it simply is not. And it can't be, you know, with a rare disease community that patients need to expect more from their pharmaceutical companies and pharmaceutical companies need to live up to that and give back to the community. I agree completely. And the whole idea of not profits first, it's let's treat the patients first. Profits are what come and then it allows you to reinvest and work on other patients issues. Um, so it's, it's, it's a machine that's made to do that, to, to move capital into research. And yes, there's profit that's made, but profits aren't necessarily an evil thing unless they're being abused, which we have seen, unfortunately. I find it very interesting that, you know, when I moved out of the pharmaceutical industry, I felt like I was walking through a looking glass. And what didn't surprise me about patients was the passion. I knew that was there. What did surprise me was the organization and the professionalism and the, the agenda that they had that wasn't just, oh, find something for me. You know, it's, we want our data back. We need to have a way to get through the, the diagnostic odyssey quicker. We need to know what's going on. We need you to create your products with us, not at us or to us. You know, it's, it, we've got to change the partnership there. I was just stunned. Um, and then I was like, why is it that I couldn't see this from inside? What was in the way? And I just think that there's a huge chasm, a huge gap between the two that has to be bridged. And I just wondered kind of, what are your ideas for building that bridge? What are you doing now that you've been on both sides? Ah, yes. So I think the one thing we need to remember is that these advocates and these patients are people and they're people first and they have they have unique stories and journeys and experience and passion. And but at the core, they're just they're people as just you and I are. And working with these organizations, they bring different experience and skill set. And that passion drives them to learn more. So for patients that are for parents, let's talk about parents, parents with a child with a rare disease, they have a clock ticking and they don't have time to mess around. So they have to put themselves in that role of drug development, of raising funds of, you know, and I've asked many of these parent advocates, did you ever, ever think that you would be a talking like a scientist, speaking like a physician, giving advice on how to raise millions of dollars. And she's in many of the parents that I've talked to said, absolutely not. I was in this industry or I was a stay at home mom and look at me now. And the, it, it's out of just the need and the urgency for treatment and therapies and to really save their child's life. On the flip side, you have, you know, adults who all of a sudden they are in the, the heyday of their life. They're thinking about retirement and then they're affected by a rare disease and they, they just get, they take a 180. What do you do there? You know, and yes, these are adults that have experience in other industries that move themselves into that role of starting a nonprofit, a patient community. And 
it just goes to show that there's so much work to be done in the rare disease community when these patients and parents and advocates have to pull the heavy weight. Now, your question was, how do you close that gap? You close that gap by mutual respect. You close that gap by opening up the dialogue about having those conversations, those open conversations. It's not us and them, it's we. We're all in, you know, all in this together to move the needle forward in rare disease. And we've come so far, and but we have so much more work that needs to be done. And to close that gap, we just have to come to, we all have to come to the get to table. We all have to respect each other and, uh, and respect and respect what everyone brings to the table. Absolutely. And I think you started out your answer there with, you have to consider them as people. And I think that's the same thing that happens the other way. The scientists are just people. They've got families that they've got to go home and take care of. They've got, you know, parents that they're taking care of. They've got, they're just people who are, are managing life and they happen to be working they happen to be working on stuff that will help these other people who are looking for that help desperately. The clock is ticking or their life's been turned upside down, whatever it is, they want to go back to what they hoped was going to happen in their lives. And when you put two things together and say, why is there a, an issue? I know from the scientific side, there's, and from the, the industry side, there's compliance issues and fears. There's interpersonal issues and fears. I don't know what to say to a patient. You know, I've never felt what they felt. What am I supposed to say? Well, why don't you say, I don't know what you felt. What do you feel? You know, it's a simple turnaround of the, the fear and just say, well, ask the question. Just don't, you don't have to be the know-it-all scientist. You need to be the person asking questions. Observe, observe, observe. And then you can think better. You hit the nail on the head on that fear of I'm going to say the wrong thing, or I'm going to upset them in some way, form or fashion. And it's simply two people having a conversation. And that's what exactly what you said. That's what you have to think about. We're just having a conversation and learning from each other. Yeah. And maybe that's one of the keys is it should be just two people. Don't hold a focus group where you've got, you know, six people behind a mirror somewhere and 10 people trying to voice their concern to a facilitator's questions, you're not actually talking to anybody. You're just observing a conversation among people who just met. And maybe it's, no, let's just schedule one-on-one -on -one meetings. You know, I know someone, and I know someone who's got a particular disorder. I know someone in a lab who might have the right technology to do that. Why don't we just have lunch? And have that conversation. You know, that type of thing. It's, it's not high volume but it's certainly high value. Absolutely. And I think what is interesting about rare disease patient and advocates is they're so passionate about helping others. They're so passionate about, you know, raising awareness that one of the um, things that we did really well at Global Genes was connecting patients. And I would have a patient call in and say, I have this particular problem. How do I, how do I get past this hurdle? And I would say, well, I have this person, this person, this person, this person that would, could absolutely help you. I'd make a phone call to those four people every single time, 100% of the time, absolutely send them my way. I'm, I will be happy to educate them on how I raised fun or how I you know, brought the community together, how I put on an event. 
and they are so giving. So they have so much going on in their life. They have so many challenges, astronomical challenges that it's just incredible that they would turn around and give back so much to their fellow rare disease patient. And it's, it's wonderful to watch that happen. So I, like you, I don't know of any direct rare disease issues in my family. But when I get to be with those rare disease people and see them connecting, it's just so fulfilling. It's just magical the, how it lifts your heart. And to see the generosity that comes from that. And I think that's something else to tap into in this, you know, how do you get scientists and, and patients talking to each other? You know what? I, maybe I don't call it generous, but scientists like to talk about what they do. They want to talk about their work. Patients want to tell them their story, tell them their stories, and just to get that conversation again, and maybe have some hints and guidelines, questions to ask, ways to to break the conversation down so it's not so over people's head that no one can understand it either way. But what's the question you ask to get somebody to simplify what they just told you? How do you, how do you manage a dialogue. Right. And that is one of the things that I have discovered that, you know, especially with on the advocacy side of things, they look at these organizations, these, these advocates, these patients that are here, they're so far along on their journey. And they do, like I said before, they do speak the language of the scientists, of the physicians, of, you know, of the payers. And they think that they have to catapult their within six months to a year. And, and that is daunting for them that they back away sometimes. You're right, Kevin, you've got to bring it back down to the basics and, and understand that a simple conversation will get you so much farther than having to you know, have those really difficult conversations. You need to pull it back and, and you have to start somewhere. And you said before, part of it is mutual respect. And, and I think it's both ways. It's respecting that the scientific knowledge is actually very arcane to most people, respecting that other person's life experience and their skills and talents. When you're talking about, you know, adults whose life are flipped over, parents who, you know, suddenly have to do this, you know what? They're good at something. They were passionate about something before. They've got talents. Maybe we find out what those are and 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 help them use them. Because I also see Lots of people who who get passionate and jump forward and they're in over their head because they're not in what's one of their strengths and they haven't found somebody to partner with who has the strength that they need. You know, whether it's like fundraising versus understanding the research versus just getting the word out and, and telling the story well. Um, there's there's different roles and different skills that come in. And then you just get, you know, other professions, you know, lawyers could be really, really you know, powerful in this space, not lawyers who are getting paid to do it, but lawyers who are doing it because they're, you know, their kid is sick or they're sick, you know, wow, that legal background, that would be wonderful to have sitting around the table when you're having discussions about things. Right. Absolutely. And you you bring up a good point in that I've given many, many talks on the development of, you know, organizations and where do you begin and, and, and where can it go? And one of the things that I would tell patients and advocates is find your passion. And as soon as you find your passion, 
you're going to go so much farther. And you said it, Kevin, sometimes they, they tr- get themselves tripped up because they're trying to fill that need that is not necessarily a skill set for them. But when you find that passion and that skill set, they can go much farther. Again, sometimes organizations, you know, I tell them you don't have to shoot for the moon right away. You don't have to fill every single role that a patient advocacy organization can fill for patients. I mean, do you just want to bring patients together? If so, great. Stop there. Do you want to raise awareness or funds for research? Fantastic. You know, what what is your mission, your goal? And maybe just stick with that. And I think sometimes they get themselves so overwhelmed because they try to do it all. And then once you start in one thing and find your passion, then sometimes, you know, you grow and develop and you bring in other people, like you said, that might have that skill set that can help develop and, and grow the organization. And sometimes you just have to start at the beginning. You don't have to be here, you know, in, in, you know, that short of, you know, amount of time. A lot of it is just taking the first steps. Just don't worry about the last step. Worry about the first one, because that's the bigger one. That last one looks like impossible, but the first step isn't, it's just really hard to get moving. Right. And, and I think it's also, you know, from the industry side, helping people see the first step is, and just say, here's what we need to learn. Here's the, the empty space of knowledge we have, here's what you can help us learn. And it could be something as easy as, can you get some patients together so we can talk about this? Absolutely. Absolutely. It doesn't have to be some big data set or registry or natural history study. I mean, already you're talking 17 steps down the line. The first one is get people talking to, to each other, understand what you're all good at, understand your shared mission, your under, your shared objective, and come together and start to figure out how can we do this together? How can we help each other? I think industry in, industry could help make it more structured instead of immediately saying, well, if you signed up in our clinical trial, it's like, there is no clinical trial. You, you know, we don't know exactly what's going on with the disease. We're back there. Oh, you need to talk to these other guys who, who talk about that early part of the, the process. So I think it's, it's a dialogue that we just have to keep nurturing and nurturing and nurturing. And, you know, for people like us who, who've jumped the chasm and gone the other way, I think I feel a responsibility to be able to do that, you know, to keep doing that. And I want to go back to your career path, but didn't cast any aspersions on your age or anything, but you're more than 20 years old. And so I think that, um, you must have done something before you ended up at Global Genes. What were you doing? What was your passion then? What were your skill sets? I was an unpaid volunteer before that. So in other words, I was home with my kids and I probably worked more hours than I do now volunteering. When somebody needed the um, class, you know, classroom mother, um, I was on the board at uh, the AYO so- Soccer League. Um, I was also involved in softball. And uh, I spent more time, I think, at my children's school than my kids did. Um, so that's really where, where my passion was and, you know, where, uh, where I was at the time. I mean, before kids, I worked in insurance. I find it interesting that sometimes life just takes you on certain paths that you didn't necessarily have a vision for. Uh, you just kind of stumble into things. And I think it's similar to the rare disease community. They they're down a certain path and they take they take a 180. 
and Global Genes was started by my friend and neighbor, Nicole Boyce. And it was just a simple conversation. I remember her, you know, we'd go on runs and we would talk about the challenges of the rare disease community. That's why first got an understanding of it. And her passion is infectious. And it was a simple, do you need help? I'd love to help. Uh, Cause that's, that's kind of my personality. And it just took off from there. And I just kept going from, from there until where I'm at now. So I think you just proved my point about taking that first step and it's easy, right? It, it's easy, but hard. You know, you're out on a run. I was going to say it literally was a kitchen table thing, right? You were drinking coffee or tea and, and you kept talking about this and look what it turned into in doing that. So you went from volunteer around things your kids were doing and things you were doing into, oh, here's something directed at something. So you had some expertise you built in volunteering and, and working in the truly nonprofit space and then moving into a nonprofit space around rare disease. And you went on this, you told us your career path and you went from kind of just helping out with events and everything right up into advocacy. And now you're the director of patient advocacy at a pharmaceutical company. Did you ever imagine that's what you were going to be doing back when you're on that run? Never, ever, not in my wildest dreams, you know, 13, 14 years later, that I think I would end up here. Would I change it for the world? Absolutely not. I am in the space that I truly believe that I was meant to be. But no, I never thought that, you know, I would be in this position. And, and even working at Global Genes, I felt that kind of that gap between the nonprofit side and the for-profit side. I didn't even know that it was and of, you know, an opportunity that there were opportunities for people to kind of jump from one side to the other, but I see it more and more. And um, I think that the for-profit side of things, they're respecting and understanding the value that people bring working in the nonprofit side and bringing that mindset, bringing that experience and education over to the for-profit side. And it's in, in advocacy, on the for-profit side for pharmaceutical companies, pharmaceutical companies is a respected role and they respect what you bring to that role to educate them on the patient community. I always say you could look at a piece of paper and see the symptoms and read the symptoms, but it tells only a minute part of their story and their journey and their challenges and those needs. They need to be filled just as much as relieving the symptom side of things. Absolutely. When you read through, you know, a, a, the, the chart of symptoms for something and you go, oh, well, that looks like this. And then people immediately kind of start analyzing it. And I remember we used to do it with adverse events. You know, whoop, there'd be a list of adverse events. And there were some that were very eye-catching, you know, something very serious. But most of them were, oh, you know, headache, fatigue, uh, nausea. What you didn't get was well, the headache was so bad that the person was stuck in their bed for three days, but they had gotten used to it. So it didn't show up as severe or, you know, the fatigue was like, you have never imagined fatigue. This wasn't just, oh, I'm a little sleepy. And it was, no, I can't move. I don't have the energy to move until you see somebody living with whatever that little label is that comes out of the coding dictionary you don't understand what, what's really going on. And I think we just need to bring those things to life for people. 
Yes, absolutely. Uh, well, on that note, you know, let's talk about a, sim- a symptom, fatigue, right? You're tired. And it can mean so many different things. But I was talking to a patient where he had children and grandchildren, and he was the fix-it man, and he was the involved grandfather that would, you know, be out there with his grandchildren, and that fatigue, it, it, he couldn't do those things anymore. And that took away his identity. So it wasn't just fatigue, his identity was taken away. And I think those are the things that people don't understand until they really, truly talk to the patients. And we go back to what we talked about before in that one-on-one dialogue to truly understand what is going on, understand their life's journey and who they are. Yeah. I love the example you just used. That really kind of takes it. It goes to a deeper level of meaning in someone's life. Just It's not even the descriptive, but it's actually the impact that it's having. So I've taken this wonderful journey, this skyrocket, you know, over a number of years. Do you think everyone on the patient side should consider something like this? Is it for everybody? I don't necessarily think that it's, it is for everybody. I think that there is different experiences on both sides of the road. There are different unique components and skill sets that you bring to both sides. And I, I don't think that some people who, who are 100% in the nonprofit side would be completely happy in the nonprofit. And I don't think everyone would be completely in the for-profit side. There are you know, unique skill sets that you bring to the table for each side of it. So I don't think it's, it's necessarily the right road for everyone. And you have to think that through. And for, but for those that are in the advocacy and awareness world, you have to have that ability to empathize and, and put yourself into the shoes of the patient and the patient community. And sometimes that can't be learned. That's just a skill set that you, you know, innately have to have. And there are a lot of skills that you can learn to bring it all together in one place. There's so many factors that go into where do, where do you end up in something like that? But if you stick with what am I good at? What do I want to do? Paths will open up whatever they are. And you know, it's such a blessing for you, I'm sure, to be able to say, I'm right where I should be. It just It just takes all the stress out of what you're doing. Well, maybe not all the stress. There's the daily stress, but it's it's like I'm doing the right thing. I'm I'm where I'm supposed to be. So I think that's fantastic. I just want to, you know, close up here and thank you so much for time and for sharing your story. Is there any last message you'd like to share with our listeners? Absolutely. I would say the one message that I think I would like to convey is follow your passion. Always follow your passion, always follow your heart. I think that you said that I was on this journey and I ended up here and I I consider myself very lucky um, that I was able to have that experience on the nonprofit side at Global Genes. And then I landed at a company that is small, that is passionate, that um, are just great people to work with. So when I follow my passion, when I follow my heart, I think that just guides you in the right direction. So always, always listen to your, to your heart and that's going to uh, take you to the right place. Please subscribe to Improbable Developments wherever you get your podcasts. 
and tell your friends to give us a listen.